Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film. I don't generally recommend judging a book by its cover, but were it not for doing just that, I'd never have encountered the work of my guest today. I made an impulse purchase of 11 films by Joost Reckfeld, having seen it on a shelf in the artist's film and video section at the BFI. I had never heard of the artist at the time, let alone seen any of the films, but after a first viewing, these works soon had such a hold on me that they remain still in my most watched list when it comes to experimental films. Joost Reckveld hails from the Netherlands, though he now lives in Brussels. His filmmaking practice has evolved to incorporate a great many aspects of experimental filmmaking techniques, but always with an individual flair that marks him out as an original. Those techniques have involved Bolex filmmaking, hand-painted films, multi-screen installations, and a fascination with how machinery impacts modern life. More recently, he has produced a number of entirely computer-generated films using software of his own creation, though his most recent work on his recent DVD release marks a return to a slightly more practical method of filmmaking. From the filmmaker's website, you can learn much about his current concerns involving a research project called Dialogues with Machines, but we begin here at the earliest stages of the filmmaker's career. I'll start off with a, hopefully an easy one. Um, what first drew you to filmmaking, and in particular, abstract filmmaking? That's a very good question, which actually no, 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 no not so many people ask anymore. <laughs> <laughs> These days I have to really think about it. Uh, well, I got into experimental film basically through narrative cinema. I mean, I was really uh, interested in, you know, I, I think I started with, uh, I, I saw once a documentary on Tarkovsky on television. You know, I was, I don't know, I was 15 years old or something. I'd mm -hmm. never seen anything like that. And I was really uh, amazed by the images I saw. And then I uh, went to a you know, local art house cinema. They were showing you know, Tarkovsky films like, you know, a, week, a week later. I think it was when Nostalgia just came out. And then, um, uh, yeah, I really liked that atmosphere so much. And I went to see other films. And then I, like two weeks later, I sort of enrolled as a volunteer. And then a month later, I was a projectionist um because they needed projections and um uh and basically through there I, yeah I, I saw lots and lots of films and at some point i realized i was really drawn to more experimental works and at some point we uh, they organized we organized a, a kind of animation weekend where you know like there's a lot of famous dutch animators especially historically so you know showed all these works and then also there were some films which were uh, completely abstract. That weekend, I, one of the works I saw was an abstract film by Bart Vechter, who um, I got to know really well later, and who was one of the Dutch abstract uh, filmmakers. Uh, and I really, really liked that work. And then later I became more interested in experimental film. And then, yeah, I realized that what I really found very interesting was abstract film. And also because of the... I think mostly also because there was a, there was a very strong link to music. And uh, you know, the first abstract films I saw, they were all based on music or you could see them as visualizations of music. It's really interesting that these things come so well together. And then basically I found out there's a whole tradition of abstract filmmakers. There's a whole tradition about thinking of, about the correspondences between music and, and images. And then through there, yeah, I got drawn into 
making things myself. Bart Vechter was the first abstract filmmaker I had ever heard of because yeah because of this local connection he had been uh, he had been working in the same archive cinema but you know like ages ago ages before me um and then when i started to make films and met other people who were also interested in in making films uh this i think that sort of wave of people had this sort of do-it-yourself ethics they sort of yeah, coalesced around Studio A um, film workshop, which had just been founded by Carl Doing at the time. Uh, and and I think one reason was also really practical is that because uh, he was he had bought um, the lab equipment from a Super 8 duplicating lab. So he had the possibility to make Super 8 prints on professional equipment and he had the know-how, he had sort of collected the know-how to, how to develop, how to process film yourself so suddenly all those things i had read about in books became more or less accessible like i was really you know i was reading about the history of these abstract cinema where you know they use devices like optical printers i had no idea what they were and i mean i learned what how, how they work how it, what they do um and what carl had was not an optical printer but he had at least a printer so you could do some manipulations of the image um so i think in that early days like with Carl Boeing and a number of people around him, around us, we yeah we were really very eager also to collect all this information. And with people like Jürgen Reble in Germany, who was you know developing his own film and doing manipulations of the celluloid in chemical ways or by burying it underground, or all this all these kind of things. Uh, and there was this group in France called Metamkin, who were also super uh, uh, active in, you know, developing and making a lab and making it accessible to other filmmakers. So it was in a way a kind of wave which, um, so this was, I think, yeah, beginning of the 90s, where uh, it was a bit like a sort of new wave of, you know, like the film co-op or, you know, like filmmakers coming together, pooling resources, pooling knowledge, uh, teaching each other or helping each other out. Uh, so that was an extremely, for me, formative time. Yeah, I'm trying to make a link to Bart Vechter, which is actually not so easy because he was not <laughs> completely not part of that scene. He was, okay. you know, he was older. Yeah, I think with Bart Vechter, I mean, um, I think in the beginning I was really influenced. I mean, it's basically through him that I found out that such a thing as abstract cinema existed. And then uh, I think later that relationship changed uh, a lot. Also at some point we were for a couple of years, we were almost neighbors when I lived in Rotterdam. He lived in, you know, he literally lived around the corner. So we, you know, met up quite regularly and sometimes, I mean, quite, yeah, we were also, there were periods where we were working in a way on similar things or on similar uh, topics in a way, but in a very different way. Uh, and then I started to realize that he worked in a completely different way than I did. That it was also super interesting to see somebody who worked in that way. Uh, because he worked, um, I mean, for me, he was really like a painter. Like, I mean, that's perhaps a prejudice I have about painters, but painters, I mean, there's also, I mean, it's prejudice based on sort of my experience in art schools also a little bit, but uh, for a long time, like the painter is really, you know, I mean, that has changed, but when I studied, the painter was somebody who didn't really theorize much and, you know, made things and reacted to what was on the canvas. And I think Bart Vechter was very much that, like he was always rendering and then looking at things and then, you know, having a feeling 
adapting his code a little bit, re-rendering. So it was a very slow process, which was not very conceptual and not very, um, like my background for, uh, was for in, in composition, like studied composition, electronic music. So that's in a way quite, uh, I was in some ways the opposite of that. Like I was really thinking of, okay, what are the parameters? And, you know, I was brainwashed by things like serial music and, you know, the beginning of electronic music. So really thinking about compositions in terms of parameters and how you extrapolate and you know, organize. And he, he didn't work like that at all. I mean, it was super interesting to see, like for him, it was really a slowly evolving canvas and he was you know, react, responding and changing things. And he couldn't really explain why, but he just felt that he had to do this. And I mean, it was really, really interesting to have this contact with him. When I studied, I mean, I, I, yeah, so I studied uh, composition for a while. I mean, um, and then I was in a way a bit disappointed that something similar to that didn't actually exist in experimental film. I mean, there's lots of filmmakers who individually have, uh, you know, extremely articulate practice or ideas, uh, depending, you know, on what kind of personality, what kind of artist they were, uh, which really deals, I think, with composition in a way, you know, it's about structuring things in time and because it's experimental film a lot of it is absolutely not narrative at all a lot of the abstract films is really very similar to me i find into to you know how to like in electronic music you organize sounds in time and in abstract cinema you organize images or light in time um so in a way i see really see all the similarities uh and also i think on a level like a lot of artists filmmakers were very articulate on a level which i don't think is very different than uh some composers for instance but the big difference is that if you study music there there is this subject which is analysis which is about an, uh, analyzing compositions and really going to the elements and you know how what did the composer do and why did he do that and where did it come from and that uh, something similar to that doesn't exist in actual cinema which i um, i was always I mean, i've been very surprised by in a way um but it, yeah, it just doesn't exist in that way i mean if this this analysis i mean there is analysis of experimental films i would have a film analysis or analysis of a painting like it's it's much more about you know what's depicted and what are the connotations but never about this really structural detail of how things are organized in time yeah so i always found that in a way very strange um also because there's lots you know a lot of these abstract filmmakers they were really also inspired by music or they were sometimes really consciously thinking of okay how we have to develop something something like a theoretical basis similar to what music has you know something like a theory of harmony of images uh, so you know there have been lots of examples of history people really you know designing things like that um but uh, yeah so that's there's an extremely strong connection there you seem quite often to be at pains to emphasize that the knowledge of the technical practices are not necessarily needed to experience or understand the films themselves. Yeah. So with, with that in mind, how would you describe or introduce your work to somebody who hasn't seen it? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the, like this, for me, it's like the, the yeah, like it, it's the, so this idea of, of making a visual art, which is uh, similar with images like what music, which does in, in moving images what music does in sound like this idea of visual music 
I mean, I think for an audience who has never seen my films, that's for me still the easiest way to sort of explain what's going on. And, uh, and it's an idea which in the beginning was really busy with in a very detailed way, like really thinking about these connections between images and sounds and how to apply sort of compositional thinking for music to images. Also thinking about the effects of, of you know, images and sounds in, in, in similar way, in that, in that way. And I don't do that anymore, uh, but still, like for me, it's still like if you look at the yeah, sort of the tree, which is sort of slowly grown of what I do, it's still the core is that, you know, it's the oldest part and it's, you know, what it's about. And I think it's still for people who have no idea of experiment in cinema. I think if you explain that, okay, it's, it's like a kind of visual music, you know, people get a sense of what it's about. And that's, I think is also still what it's about. Uh, and then the next question, of course, is what kind of music is it? And um, and there, of course, you know, there's all kinds of music, and then yeah, and I think that that had really changed, like my approach. And then basically, what happened at some point, I was I realized that you know, if you think about music, there is this thousands-year-old tradition of you know people already making music, having instruments, having notation, having you know all these ideas about music, like theories and notes and all these things. And if you make visual music, none of that exists. Like you have to all sort of, uh, like you don't have an instrument to make visual music or you have them now perhaps like in software, but uh, it's not, these are not standard. It's not like a violin, which is sort of, or piano, which is like the thing which has been around for centuries. Um, so, uh, which also means that if you start thinking about these things, you also have to develop your own tools somehow. And, uh, and that's how I started to think about technology, and, you know, what this technology means and how we relate to technology. And then, yeah, it became something else. But still, in the end, uh, I think there's this musical dimension to it still, um, like it's still composed. I mean, I still compose things, uh, I feel. Uh, and then there's another layer, which is also still, if you don't know how it's made, I'm, I'm now basically also trying to to tell a sort of non-verbal story about certain types of phenomena. So I, so basically every film I make is a kind of story of things, structures coming together and dispersing and, uh, and what these structures are, they can be, you know, related to, you know, similar to what you see in how, what, how crystals form, things like that, uh, which means that for me they are about a certain types of processes which you might know as an audience also like you might know them from you know, your body or just looking up in the sky or whatever um, and these connotations for me are very important like that's for me like these abstract films are not about nothing they're about all these other things which resemble these kind of processes mm. that makes sense yeah absolutely and it is that um you know the the there seems to be an openness in the films at the same time that it can trigger various different thoughts you can say it's about lots of different things but that openness seems to be quite important to you as well yeah yeah i'm i'm totally i'm always super happy if people see things in my films which i've never <laughs> thought, thought about or uh like i remember like and, and very often it's also like i made one film it's uh well, you know, it's experimental films, so these films are not well-known, but I think within that, within that world, like one of my most well-known films, is a film called Number 11, Marais Moiré. And it's a film which is, uh, it's basically about, you know, the, well, about, but it's about, it's based on the fact that the film medium, if you think of celluloid and a projector, it basically is related to the stroboscope, uh, it's related to all these things. 
and and what I do in that film, I, I, I basically try to strip it to some kind of essence. So the only thing I do, there's a line which is rotating and I chop this motion of that line into bits and then you get a film which consists of all these li different line patterns. And then I remember open air screening of that film once in Rotterdam and it was an open air cinema and it was great. It was, you know, lots of people, it's a summer thing and lots of people come and you know, people from all kinds of people come, like certainly not only people interested in experimental cinema. And then there were these sort of two older guys standing at the back and said, yeah, yeah, it looks like a shaving, uh, you know, a shaver, the inside <laughs> of a shaver. And then I think, well, you know, you know, they were not complaining. Uh, in a way, it's very exactly what they're looking at. You know, it's the inside of a shaver, not very different than the inside of a projector in a way. Like, you know, there's lots of similarities. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always, you know, it's super interesting and, um, and I think that's also one of the interesting things about abstract films is that, it, that it's um, abstraction is a kind of is, is, a, is a kind of freedom of indeed or indeterminacy like it's you know you sort of like for me if I think about my film there are about certain types of processes uh, and these processes are made abstract which means also that they're in a way it's a way of saying that they're made made more general so they can apply to lots of different things uh, and some of my later films, like a lot of these processes are more sort of organic. And it's true, like these, if you think of them as algorithms, then yeah, they apply to things like moss growing. There's lots of places in nature where such things then also occur. So that's also something I find really interesting. Many of your films often have numbers instead of titles. Can you explain why that is? Uh, yeah, it's it, it relates also in a way back to music. Like a lot of music pieces don't actually have titles. And I was also, you know, I was starting to make films also in a, in a, in a way in a musical environment. So I, in a way, the idea of having a title didn't really seem very necessary. You know, like a lot of music pieces are called just opus something. And then I, there's also lots of filmmakers, actually, experimental filmmakers, like these people like Kurt Krenn, who has just numbered his films. Uh, there's Harry Smith, who didn't really bother, but then other people numbered his films. Uh, there is uh, Oscar, Oscar Fischinger, like one of my also heroes in abstract filmmaking. He had a long series of studies, which were just numbered. Um, so for me, you know, the kind of environment in, where I was in, it just made total sense to do that. Um, and then basically I still do that uh, just in principle is just every project has a number and then once in a while there seems to be a reason to also have a title but it's yeah From the film 43.4, which can be found as a bonus feature on the DVD of Joost's films produced by the iFilm Museum in Amsterdam and Revoir in Paris. This is available as a double edition with a DVD and Blu-ray of the films, as well as a detailed book with writings from the filmmaker. 
Outside of gallery and cinema screenings, this really is the only way to see Reckfeld's work. So how was the process of transferring cinematic works to consumer media, and why does the filmmaker find this preferable to online outlets? The whole project started with the <coughs> I Film Institute, which is like the Dutch Film Museum. I mean, they, they do very, I mean, they have an exhibition space now. I mean, they do interesting things. And um, they had embarked on a quite ambitious project to basically preserve uh, basically all criminal film. Uh, and at some point they had reached the letter R. <laughs> so they <laughs> came to me. Uh, and they had um, already a few, I mean, they had already some of my works in the, I, I've been working with them before. They had some of my works in the collection. And basically they, we made an agreement and they, 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 uh, they restored all my older work. And I felt very ambivalent about it. Like one hand I was thinking, wow, you know, what, what happened? I mean, do they, are they broken? Do they need to be restored already? <laughs> like, you know, like I thought this film, you know, will last for centuries and now, you know, it's <laughs> have to restore them. Um, but it's for them also restoring also, also a way of, of making them accessible in different ways now, because of course, yeah, like films don't live only on celluloid anymore or even the, the celluloid is dying out very rapidly. Um, so they basically also started transferring uh, all these older works uh, to, to digital. And then from there, this idea came, okay, we should be great to do a, a release. And in terms of, um, yeah, sort of being comfortable, like in a way it's, I think it's the most luxurious way this can happen. Like you there's you know, like curators, like the people from the archive department at I are extremely capable and, and lovely people uh, who have really a passion for film and some of them also really have a passion for experimental film. So, you know, they do this with very much care. Uh, so that's, you know, it's really fantastic. Um, and basically they made all these, their, their preservation and restoration work available for us to then publish uh, together. So it's a co-production of I and Revoir, the video label. Um, uh, and in terms of, of sort of translating works, there was not that much, because of all the works which are on the DVD, they were already were sort of intended for screening. So in that sense, there's not a lot of, like if there's a link to installation work, I already sort of made a film version of that. So uh, the only work which is really, where we really um, made a kind of interpretation, you could say is the um, number five, because it's, a, it's an expanded cinema piece, it's a film which was already made for three 60 mil projections side by side. So it's also a bit of a performative work because if you have 16 millimeter projectors, they never run at the same speed. So they always, you know, there's always fiddling around to find the right way to start it. There's one moment in the film I really want to be sync. Mm -hmm. So it always feels a bit like a race, like it's three horses and, you know, are they racing as planned? Um, and for that film, we for the digital version, we basically made a kind of interpretation of how it would look in a cinema, like how we set it up. So you have like three screens within the larger frame, mm. uh, also of your home uh, cinema. It was also the problem in a way of number seven, which is a. Uh, it was like as I said, we talked about it. It was this. this it's this film which was painted. Mm. Uh, so it's basically the negative. It's this big roll of film. Uh, with paint 
uh, and what happens, I mean, I never, I mean, I, I made a, a, a used, so the, basically the original, which is painted, was a negative. And then I made two prints from the negative, which are the films which I've shown. Uh, and basically what we wanted to do is to scan the original, but it's not a normal original. So basically what happens is the few moment you try to unroll it, uh, the paint sort of disintegrates. Uh, so this part of the film, especially in the beginning, because I, I mixed the paint with something else, that part is really, uh, we had to go back to one of the prints I had made to actually, because your negative, you can't really use it anymore. So there also there were some like for them that's a kind of case of an interesting preservation case. <laughs> You're glad they did that now, then. <laughs> yeah, and I'm very happy that they did it because it's uh, they preserved it as a digital master, but also there's a there's a, also a film preservation negative now. Um, so I'm super happy they did that because it's one of the sort of ticking time bombs. Like we think, well, if we wait too long, it's we never. Yeah, we won't never be able to make new prints but and, and of course it's very different to see these films at home uh, and that's also I think one of the reasons that I was still going for the disc format even though it's sort of dying out it's that it's I mean there is a community of people who collect these things and they tend to watch these in sort of home cinema circumstances and, and I mean and, and you know that's I think the closest you can get to a cinema and uh, I do want these films to be accessible as much as possible. But I don't want them to be online because I don't think that's, well, so far, I mean, that, that will change at some point probably. But if I watch a film online, I hardly watch, I rarely watch the whole thing. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. Uh, like you don't have the focus or you have to really make you have the focus. And I think with a home cinema, it's still, yeah, it's, it's still a bit different. Because I, I'm not, you know, I, again, I'm not against any of these things. I mean, <clears throat> but um, uh, it's just, I think my work needs a kind of focus, which you just simply don't have on these platforms. And then, so you make the images available, but you, in a way, the work is not really there. I mean, the work only sort of starts existing when this focus is there. So, so yeah, it's a bit how I see it. It's not about making the work available online. It's about creating a situation where this work can be experienced. So, to experience Joost Reckfeld's films for yourself, don't hesitate to go for the DVD edition of his films. These really run the gamut of what is possible in abstract film, from forms of light painting, as found in films number 3 and 5, to a form of hand painting, as found in number 7, and a computer-generated visual exploration of crystal formations and nods to Islamic art, as found in the later work number 37, which is a personal favourite of mine. My usual final question of how to enjoy experimental film prompted a fascinating response from the artist, focusing on the communal experience of experimental film. Well, it's, I don't know if it's a really good answer to your question, but it's, uh, it's a bit because we just talked about all these online platforms. And yeah. I think um, one aspect of the history of experimental cinema is also about creating a community and a kind of collectivity. And um, I think that is important to be aware of creating that because it's, um, because commercial cinema is, I mean, uh, you know, like I think experimental cinema has always been defined as in opposition to commercial cinema, by definition almost. Um, and uh, all these platforms are commercial entities. Like they, they're not, interested in us so much they're interested in our data and they're interested in 
our behavior patterns and you know milking all these things and i i really don't think that's a good basis you know literally you know fundament to build a platform on which is uh, uh, suitable for experimental cinema so i think if we have you know the history of experimental cinema also as uh, ways of thinking of alternative film distribution uh, if uh, also with video art a lot of the video art i mean a lot of video art is now in galleries and sort of part of the art market but there's also a strand of the history of video art which is about open access television or sharing you know television uh, so i think something like that has to happen also in the online world where uh, there is a kind of community where there is the requisite care uh, where basically you could basically phone your platform and say hey what's going on i make this these images and, and they don't work well, what's what's why what can i do because vimeo you cannot phone them you cannot say oh i made this film and uh, you know it doesn't work on your platform can you change it please um and i think that's really uh something like you know some kind of platform of care or a group of people who care about these things i think that's that's really uh, super important because experimental cinema uh, you always have to explain things you always have to and it's not because it's difficult but it's just because all this explanations in, in commercial cinema has been done to you you have learned how commercial film worked when you were four uh, and then since then you know it it's not nature it's just they you know people took the trouble to explain it to you but really early so you forgot about it and with experimental film, because all these things are different, uh, every artist has their own approach, you have to explain these things. And that's not a problem. It's also part of the, the sort of care. So I think if you ask me the question, like, what's necessary? I think it's really necessary to have this community. And that's, for me, also links to yeah, platforms of distribution. So, some time ago, I was very active in, in also you know, putting film programs together of abstract cinema. And I was always struck that the only thing you have to do is to get these people in. Because if you look, for instance, at Fischinger films, they're super accessible. I mean, it's not a problem at all. I mean, the word abstract, you know, people think of a mathematics or, uh, you know, complicated things, but it's complicated at all. And uh, like these, and also the, if you think of, if you look at the history of Fischinger films, like when he made them in the thirties, there were also like, he had 10,000s of people coming to his films. I mean, it was, he was these were not obscure at all. Um, and, uh, and also because, you know, they're super accessible. You just have to sit down and enjoy them. It's, there's nothing difficult about it. Um, and I think that goes for really a lot of action in the film. It's totally possible. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back with more very soon. You can find more from Joost at joostrekfeld.net, as well as some excerpts and interviews on YouTube and Vimeo. The music for this show is by Gabriel Ness, and clips from Reckfeld's films were used with the express permission of the filmmaker. Thanks for listening, and do tune in next time.